Welcome back to the Midfield Politics Podcast. My name is Luke James and I'm joined in the commentary position by Zach Green. Before we get into today's podcast, we wanted to thank everyone who joined us on Spotify and Anchor last week. We're excited to see what comes of the show as we build midfield politics throughout the year. Last week, Zach and I spent a lot of time talking about procedural issues in British politics. Starmer's surge in the polls, the government's loosening grip on coronavirus discourse, and of course, Dominic Cummings' Northwood adventure. This week, our attention shifts to the strengthening Black Lives Matter protests around the world. Sparked by the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month, demonstrations have now touched every part of the world and are still ongoing in many cities around the globe. Last weekend, the statue of Edward Colston, a British slave trader, was toppled by protesters in Bristol. In the days that have followed, the removal of Colston's statue has gained global interest and has sparked a conversation about the future of our urban spaces. What is the point in statues? Does removing them destroy history? Should streaming services remove shows that contravene modern standards? The toppling of a statue has created more interest in British history than I ever came across at school. Black Lives Matter has already made a transformative impact on how people around the world talk about history. Before we get into the episode, I want to reiterate something that I said at the start of last week's show. I'm committed to learning more and being a good ally to Black Lives Matter. And on that, I will always do my best. Just like last week, I'll post a link to a collection of resources in the description of this podcast. Uh, good afternoon, Luke. And just from your comments, I completely echo that. There's nothing really else to be said apart from us being allies and really learning when we can and in the most appropriate way. Definitely. And of course, since since we last spoke, so much has happened um with regards to the black lives matter and it's kind of taken up all of all of the attention in the media and and it is of course the main story around the world everywhere so it's important that we cover it this week and of course we're going to try and talk about it from a perspective and a position of privilege as well because that well not try to it's the position from which we talk about these things because of course we both grew up in a similar area we're both white men of course that kind of affects the way that we kind of interpret these issues but I think the best place to start with this topic is so, of course, as well, we're recording this um, on Friday afternoon. The time now is just before half past two. So if anything happens between now and the time this is published, that will be why we haven't mentioned it. But this morning, Boris Johnson had an eight tweet thread where he basically talked about the protests. I I wanted to cover some of it Um, in his third tweet. He said, we cannot try to edit or censor our past. We cannot pretend to have a different history. The statues in our cities and towns were put up by previous generations. He then goes on to say they had different perspectives, different understandings of right and wrong. But those statues teach us about our past with all of its faults. To tear them down would be to lie about our history and impoverish the education of generations to come. Um, So, Zach, what did you make of the prime minister's comments? To be fair to Boris Johnson, and this will not be said a lot by me, but that most of what he's saying I actually quite agree with about the idea that uh, different concepts of right and wrong, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the problem I have with what he's saying, the big problem is, he talks about this idea that education would be distorted if we took down these statues. But if we look at the education system itself, in how we learn about historical figures from key stage two to potentially university level. 
there's a clear deficiency in the middle. And one thing I remember when we studied history, I think back in Albany in our secondary school, was the way that we learned about the Second World War. And I know we'll come on to this, but say for example, Winston Churchill, we learn about the heroic side. We learn about the side that I think we're most proud of, but we don't cover the other side, which I think deserves not an overload of education for, but at least an appraisal. So we can kind of appreciate Winston Churchill, but also take a critical analysis of him. And I think, so when Boris Johnson says about impoverishing education, I think he's a bit, he, he doesn't get the point of the movement. He doesn't really get the point of why people are angry at these figures. It's because where we've not learnt about these figures, probably in the full, and we can't really get the word, in the complete nature, we're impoverished anyway. Yeah, and I think... And this will form the crux of everything that I say in this podcast, if I'm being totally honest. Um, I think the way, and I can only speak about kind of British mainstream education, I can't can't speak on any other countries, but the way that we teach history in this country is absolutely abysmal. It's really, really horrifically Mm. bad. So like, if I think back to secondary school, so I took history, um, GCSE, and then I started history A-level and then dropped it halfway through. Oh. Um, and I think about the things that we- See out to the end. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think about the things that we learned <laughs> in, in history and especially in secondary school where most people were still kind of studying the subject. And you learn about kind of both of the world wars, you learn about the Egyptians, you learn about kind of, things way 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 far back in the past like that and then you learn more about kind of um the world wars essentially that they are the two main things and you might have some stuff about the russian revolution and things like this but when when you look at british history and you look at the british empire and of course that's kind of a focus earlier on kind of in the secondary um secondary history syllabus it's all framed really positively which is just I'm trying really hard not to swear. It's the biggest load of nonsense you could ever come across. It's the most ridiculous <laughs> account of British history you could possibly find. And it's actually really, really disgusting that that's the way that it's taught in this country. Um, and you look at it and kind of my recollection of history at GCC level and kind of in key stage three is, okay, so Britain was previously this kind of world power. We ruled the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that was always framed as a positive thing. It was never kind of Britain ruled the world, but in doing so enslaved lots of people and committed atrocities around the world. The negative side was never shown. And I think when you talk about Winston Churchill, and of course, this is one of the most kind of fraught issues on social media today with regards to the protests that might be happening tomorrow. of course, Winston Churchill, and this this is the defence of Winston Churchill. People say, well, he helped to defeat the Nazis, which, of course, is, is true. He was the prime minister in World War II. Um, but we don't, at the same time, lord the leader of kind of Soviet Russia for defeating the Nazis. That That's not a thing. But obviously, we, we when I say we, I mean kind of British history, the way that it's taught, we celebrate Winston Churchill, and then we completely ignore the things that Churchill said about the Bengal famine in 1943 
um, and issues like that. And it's just such a one-sided account of history. And of course, the, the quote that springs to mind, this history is written by the winners. I'm, I'm sure I've got that quote entirely wrong, but that's the crux of it. And it's a case of saying, well, of course, if you are going to study someone like Winston Churchill, you have to acknowledge the things that he did in the war. You also then have to acknowledge the disgusting things that he did elsewhere. I'm interested to know kind of your response to that. I completely agree. And um, I saw A-level history through entirely. And the thing that I picked up when we learned about Britain in the 17th century, for example, was we learned about this thing called the triangular trade. So basically, this was the foundations of slavery itself, and that Britain was actually quite a principal candidate in the um, proliferation of slavery. And it's such a crass thing when you learn about it. But even in that syllabus, even the way it was framed, it was still framed as an economic necessity. I, I never forget uh, a class we had, and the teacher was saying, well, of course, Britain paid a moral cost, but the economic cost at the time justified it. And you're thinking it's this kind of rationale that's persisted across centuries and centuries of history that's being taught in our education system. And a quite a startling thing, we talk, we just spoke about Churchill. Even by 20th century standards, most of his views were quite racist it's, uh, themselves. And it's this failure by successive governments to kind of appreciate the history around us, that we can't just keep history rounded into this content dump that's going to be remembered for an exam and then move on. So I think history serves not just as a standalone subject, you know, you learn a lot more about other things with history and about colonialism, slavery itself. I remember in English literature, we learned about Leopold. Obviously, his statue's now been taken down, thank goodness. No idea why it was there in the first place because he did oversee a genocide of millions in the Congo. But it's this kind of failure by history itself in the higher education that's that leaves a gap because most people will not go on to study a level history or any subjects that might engage a deeper understanding of history and it's kind of frustrating because people are going to be walking out of uh secondary school with this kind of if it wasn't for churchill would be speaking german if it, you know, the british empire was really good it's just frustrating because change can happen, but it's successive governments that have been so intransigent to it that we're never going to get it done. And one thing I hope about this movement is that this could be the move, this could be the watershed moment where we finally acknowledge our history. Because I think at the moment we only look back at it rather than face it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think what and, and building upon what you said and this kind of extends beyond beyond kind of black lives matter and just kind of education in general is the way that and again i can only talk about how this is kind of taught and approached in british schools but the way you're assessed up until you leave secondary school in the uk is so kind of just okay here's a textbook remember everything in it but don't don't worry about critically analyzing it or anything like that it's so problematic as well because School in this country doesn't teach young people how to think for themselves. It teaches them how to pass a test. And the issue is the test that people are trying to pass is a memory test for all intents and purposes. They're not trying to pass a test that assesses their ability to do anything valuable in the modern economy. So, for instance, 
you will take an English test and obviously they've changed the GCSE since we sat them and now you're not allowed to have the, the book there the and whatnot. So literally you have to remember random quotes from, I don't know what texts are on the syllabus anymore, whether it be Macbeth or whatever it might be. And then you go, okay, so I've remembered these quotes and then I write them in the exam and then I'll probably get an okay mark. And it's just ridiculous because if you think of, think about the jobs that people in this country are going to do once they once they leave education, you don't need to remember random quotes or random facts mm. or remember how to do a certain equation from memory. You can store it on a USB stick you could buy for a fire from Argos. It's just ludicrous. And I think that that, yeah. that is massively problematic when it comes to our education system. It doesn't it doesn't encourage people to think for themselves. It encourages people to read the textbook, read the textbook again, and then you'll get a good grade. And this is um, and this quote really sticks with me about kind of the 1943 Bengal famine of this is Churchill. He said that Indians were breeding like rabbits and then asked kind of if the shortages of food were so bad, how was Gandhi still alive? And it seems like this. And it's like oh. that is just an utterly. It's comments that make you wince. It's probably even if we done this podcast 20 years ago, it's such a vile quote. It's horrific. It's absolutely gross. And history in this country doesn't recognise that. And to, to return to the Prime Minister's quote, it's kind of like, okay, well, if, if these if these statues, and we'll talk about kind of different issues that have cropped up this week, if these statues are so important to how we learn about history, then why isn't there a plaque on Tate Winston Churchill, for example, that says, okay, this was his role in World War Two, and this is some of the other kind of more disgraceful things that he did in his life and career. And I think that 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 way, a statue goes from being something that ultimately there is to champion someone, and then it turns into an educational re educational resource. Um, and yeah. kind of in the, in the introduction to the show, I said, what is the point of a statue? And this is something that has been of such a major, major kind of source of conflict on social media this week, with people typically um, journalists on the right of the spectrum saying that, no, we should... Um, Darren Grimes was, if we can call Darren Grimes a journalist, um, which I personally don't think we can. I think that's offensive in itself. Yeah, I, I apologise for calling Darren Grimes a journalist. When Darren Grimes, in response to the Edward Colston um, statue being dumped underwater, he, he was like, well, we, we can't do this. We, we can't erase our history. But people don't... Hmm. First first and foremost, I, I've been to Bristol once in my life, so of course I, I'm not going to know everything about Bristol, but like, you walk past the statue, you don't, unless you're interested in the history for a specific reason, you don't look at a statue and learn something from the statue, you look at the statue and go, oh, that's a nice statue, correct me if I'm wrong, and in your son who studied A-level history, but I don't think statues are important in any way whatsoever right. as a means of learning something they're a way of celebrating someone that's why we have statues mm. of people who have achieved good things that's the whole point of a statue it's why there is a statue of bobby moore on a roundabout upside where upton park was you don't and peter osgood at stanford bridge it's a triumphalist it, every statue is this kind of idea that you're putting a moment immortalized forever exactly and that's why and that's forever. and that's why people kind of if you're this way inclined would aspire to have a statue they, they don't want a statue so people can learn about them you want a statue so that people celebrate you and it's like kind of 
this is a very weird kind of tangent, but it's like Hollywood Boulevard. It's like the names of the people aren't on the pavement so that people can learn about them. It's because people are celebrating them. And I just reject in its entirety the narrative that statues are there so people can learn about them. That's why, for instance, the statues that are being taken down, and we're going to talk about more examples in a minute, the statues that are being taken down should be put in a museum, put in context, and then you have your statue that teaches people history. Having a random statue of a slave trader in a street is just really, really horrific and really just, I I would like to think of a more sophisticated word than gross, but it's just gross and inhumane. and Crass and uncouth. It's worse Um, than that. It's just, just, it's just kind of, it's just awful. It just makes absolutely no sense. And, a journalist um, I, who, who is genuinely a journalist, who I really like, is James O'Brien. Um, and one of the questions he keeps saying um, this week in his, in his show on LBC, and we'll talk, I keep saying this, we'll talk more about LBC later in the show. Um, one, of the, one of the questions he keeps asking is, what would you say to your children if you had to walk past the statue every day of a person who treated people of the colour of your skin worse than he did the animals that he owned. Why do we still have a statue of these people? It just, it's really beyond me. It really, really is. I think it boils down to what's going to happen in terms of this is a full-blown culture wars. Because, oh, you've already said it about we should be putting these statues in museums, I completely agree. Because the danger is with this movement, if for example, say for example tomorrow Winston Churchill ends up in the Thames, I hope not to be quite honest, because I think the aftermath would be quite something once you take down one statue the left and the right are going to start to think well hang on a minute, if that statue goes down we can take down this one, if this statue goes down we'll take take down that one and it turns into a tit for tat where no one wins because, for example, I think a Tory MP yesterday, and it was quite disgraceful, in my opinion, basically advocated desecrating on one of the Marx memorials. Now, I'm no Marxist, but I'm thinking that would be incredibly facetious if you just, you know, end up urinating on Marx's monument or destroy that one. But it kind of incites other people to do that, what they think. And it's this idea that we will be impoverished in education of history if we just start taking down every single one because people are reactionary if you take down churchill people want gandhi taken down you know so i think education is such an important issue we have to put these statues in museums and give the context because people always have a preconceived judgment of history you can only teach someone so far if they don't want to learn about winston churchill and the famine they won't and it's such a it, it, it's a horrible reality, but that's the case. Therefore, if we put them in a museum, we can give that well-rounded appraisal, both good and bad, and let the individual decide. Black Lives Matter um, demonstrations and movement shouldn't be about a culture war. It should be everyone, no matter what walk of life you're from, no matter which political ideology you subscribe to, should be coming together and saying, well, yes, clearly, Black Lives Matter, we need to stamp out institutional racism, systemic racism. Mm-hmm. That is what it should be. But of course, because everyone is now entitled to their own version of the truth, then it becomes a culture it war. And gets it gets distorted. Exactly. And it's mm. just, 
it, it's, that's exactly what the context I meant. Yeah. In the the narrative now between left and right is they're going to interpret. For example, the right. You're seeing the journal inverted commas journalists. We'll call them them from now on. Inverted comma journalists are seeing this as an attack on British identity. But isn't that the root of the problem? If you associate, for example, everything about Winston Churchill as the British identity, then you are saying that Britain's history is embedded in racism. Yet you don't want to learn about racism. You don't want to be responsive to systemic institutional racism, historic racism. And it's kind of this juxtaposition that we're seeing in this culture war that's kind of scooping everyone up. Because if you don't want Winston Churchill's statue gone, you are considered to be by some, by the narrative of some, to be this unpatriotic, uh, you know, in terms of framing the narrative, you're saying in this post-truth world, that's the danger of this whole thing. And it's kind of pushing against this movement, which it shouldn't, because the Black Lives Matter movement is a lot more than just a statue. But some people are framing it to be that. I think it's the danger as we're talking about it, as it's happening today, tomorrow, next week. It's such a danger to the movement if it gets tarred with this brush that, oh, it's just an attack on statue. It's so much more than that. And I think the failure to grasp that by Boris Johnson, by Donald Trump, you know, we, we're seeing a kind of a pattern. Yair Bolsonaro, for example, the failure to acknowledge that this movement is not just about taking statues and putting them in a the river. It's about finally making our politicians listen, making our politicians change. And if it means that statues have to go in the river to, for these politicians to learn that racism in any form, in any institution is not on, then I'm afraid they've kind of tied our hands. It has to happen. Yeah, that's that's the thing. That is the thing. One something that's emerged from social media this week, and it's again, if you've if you've been watching and had an interest in politics and followed politics for a while, especially since kind of the twenty sixteen referendum and and the presidential election that year, um, it's it's entirely unsurprising when you have people on social media, journalists, activists, inverted comma journalists, whatever we want to call them, saying things like, "Oh, this is kind of a left wing." etc 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 or this is a far left march and things like this and it's like for, for instance i went on a run last this is a random anecdote i went on a run last week in coventry um and there were my my route around this is completely irrelevant but my, i run around coventry twice basically <laughs> um and my first run around coventry there wasn't many people on the streets of course everyone's kind of staying at home as instructed by the government and then the second time around it started to get a bit busy in the in the city center um and there were people with um banners and flags and whatnot so it was like oh okay i don't know what's kind of going on i hadn't seen anything on social media um and then i got around the corner and there was an incredible for, for a city of the size of coventry considering the amount of students who typically make up the population who aren't here anymore because of because obviously um warwick and coventry aren't in term time anymore the amount of people there from every walk of life was just spectacular it's like to the politicians and uh, and my home mp is is an example of this to the politicians who are like oh this is a this, this is a left-wing thing this is kind of an attack on british values and morals and whatnot 
get your head out of your backside. It is just ridiculous. Look at these people and tell me they are all from a, the, the Socialist Workers' Party. It's absolute nonsense. Garbage. It really is ridiculous. But, of course, and again, it's really difficult not to get caught up in the social media kind of bubble. Because, of course, when you go on social media, you, you see social media is an echo chamber. And there are people on social media who I follow and Facebook videos that I watch who I completely disagree with. Um, because... I study politics. It's always Facebook. Yeah, so I, I study politics, so I like to watch videos from both sides, whether I agree with them or not. Um, not people who just kind of will say anything that the Prime Minister wants them to say, but people who are genuinely led by an ideology, whether I like it or not kind of thing. So I try to get away from the whole echo chamber thing. But when you go on social media, you see two very clear groups of people. You see the people on one side and you see the people on the other and it's like everyone has lost the ability to have a nuanced conversation about anything and this is yes. the issue with Winston Churchill Winston Churchill is the main example of why this has all become such a fraught head-to-head -head left versus right issue and I don't believe it's a left versus right issue but that's how I'm kind of framing it and going along with what's been said in the media is everybody has lost the ability to say Churchill led the country through the Second World War. Okay, he also said these things and did these things. And then you can have a proper discussion about it. But people are only willing to say, and I think it is mainly the people trying to defend the statue, and we'll, we'll get on to the protests in a minute. Like the people who go, well, no, he helped us through the war. If it wasn't for Winston Churchill, we'd be speaking German. It's, it's utter yeah. ludicrous nonsense. Um where would you like to take this conversation next? Have you got kind of any any things that are coming to mind or over to you, basically? Again, about these movements, um, one thing I found particularly disgusting was, I don't know if you saw it, you know, in London, of the three people who apparently represent Britain first and with this... A picture of, I think, you know, the girl in Manchester, I can't remember her name off by heart, Sarah Davies, I'm going to say, who was stabbed in a park. And what this movement are trying to do, and it's kind of this, like I said, this left-right divide, they're now trying to co-opt the values of the Black Lives Matter movement into their own movement, which is so awful. For example, they were making up that the, the girl was stabbed by a Somalian immigrant when it turned out to be a woman that wasn't a Somalian immigrant and this post-truth world that in the age of protest when you have London is this hotbed of tension anyway I was just wanted to say that basically the London protest kind of kind of gives you that cross-section of society and where society is yeah and of course there's been lots of comments made today on Friday as, as we're recording the episode about the protests that are potentially going to happen this weekend. So this was from kind of an extended um, announcement that Sadiq Khan delivered on Twitter. And it says, extreme far-right groups who advocate hatred and division are planning counter-protest, counter which means that the risk of disorder is higher, being no doubt that these counter-protests are there to provoke violence, and their only goal is to distract and hijack, hijack this important issue. Staying home and ignoring them is the best response this weekend. And this this speaks to um, 
what's what's been happening on social media i've seen some bits and pieces and i've seen kind of some videos shared around where basically there's a coalition of very right-wing people by kind of what i can see who are going to travel to london and to protect various monuments the winston churchill statue for example um what what do you make of this kind of development it's it's kind of sobering to know that we are really in quite bleak territory here because say for example tomorrow that the extreme right do um do come to london do to try to defend the statue i don't think just saying oh stay at home don't don't listen to them will work because i think it's such a passionate such an emotional argument that it's kind of how can you not react to these those vile thugs that are going to peddle off some awful views some awful awful threats i think it's not enough i think there has to be more firm leadership from the top of this because if for example there was to be some sort of conflict tomorrow i think that's on the heads of those at the top because it's their chance to intervene to say look this is not the place this is not the time for massive divisions in this country we have to really not rein it in as such because it's an argument where you can't really rein in what you think but kind of try and urge both sides to say look you cannot let the whole thing engulf what you're actually protesting for i think it's, it's kind of like baiting isn't it from the extreme right they're baiting they're waiting for the bite and they know they're going to get it and it's going to be how about how it's going to be covered how it's going to be looked at it, it's quite it's just bleak i think yeah um what what i don't understand and this goes from the people who were defending the edward not defending but the people who were aghast at the fact that edward Colston was dumped in in the river and whatnot is i don't understand and again my political um my political stance is probably very obvious to people who have listened to the podcast i don't need to point out what my beliefs are um i don't understand what the people who are defending and i say this in inverted commas defending the statues think they're defending i don't understand and and people who are like well desperate for the for the edward colston statue and were like outraged that people had been able to take it down and put it in a river and outraged about the fact that the police weren't on hand to protect the statue what do these people think they're defending i don't understand i don't understand if if people think that edward colston is this great symbol of british entrepreneurship we seriously have so many issues in this country it's just ridiculous i don't i really do not I, and again I'm, I'm rambling a little bit but i don't understand like i personally and again this speaks to a major issue that we have in our education system before last weekend that's to say it goes back to education this whole thing about what are you actually defending i think it's what education has instilled in people that there are certain exact british values that if they're in any way questioned if they are in any way doubted people get angry so i think 
some of these people who are blindly defending the statue, I kind of sympathise with them because I don't think they're thinking for themselves. And it's kind of this great irony of it all. That what are they defending? They're not defending themselves. They're not defending their family. They're not defending, you know, their country. They're defending something that's ingrained in their mind that they think is under attack. So I think it is, like you say, it is going back to education. I think when we change the attitude in education, you'll see a much more different view, I think. Yeah, the point the point I was going to make, um, and it, again, as I said, it kind of cuts back to education, is the fact that before last weekend, I honestly don't think I'd heard of Edward Colston. And I don't think most of the people in the country would have heard of Edward Colston unless you were in Bristol and you were directly affected by the statue or had a... I think we learnt more about his statue being destroyed than the statue actually being... That's the exact point I'm making. Like, the fact that the statue was there... I Again, I'm not from Bristol, I don't know, but no, the wider public knew very, very little about Edward Colston unless you were directly involved in wanting to get rid of it. And that's only a small percentage of the population, most of which probably live in Bristol and are affected by it. So if most of the country didn't know who Edward Colston was, and I would be amazed if many people knew, kind of run-of-the-mill people knew who Edward Colston was, then how... We could do a competition for the podcast. How, how on earth <laughs> did people who didn't previously know who Edward Colston was suddenly jump to his defence? What were they defending? It's bizarre. Like, how did Edward Colston, being this random slave trader who people previously had no knowledge of, to being someone who then there were thousands and thousands of people offended by the fact his statue had been taken down. It's just the most ridiculous situation ever. The fact that it's just like clinging to defend the indefensible with this kind of stuff. And it's like, if you didn't know who Edward Colston was, how within the space of a day, two days, three days, do you go from anonymity to being desperately, desperately concerned about the welfare of a statue to a slave trader? I don't understand. Yeah, completely echo that. It is baffling. It's it? yeah, that's that's the thing, and I think that's why I keep kind of going back, going back on it. It is just absolutely baffling. I don't, I don't, I really don't understand. I really, really don't understand. Um, another issue that, if I'm being honest with, I don't understand, and I think this is part of the problem. And this is this is a quote taken from the BBC's website. So following police information, the 12 year old statue of Robert Baden Powell is set to be temporarily removed to protect it. Bournemouth, Christchurch and Paul Council said the statue will have 24 hours security protection until it can be removed. Protesters gathered at the quayside to show support for the statue. Baden Powell, who died at age, aged 83 in 1941, has been criticised um, by campaigners who have accused him of racism, homophobia, and support for Adolf Hitler. Uh, if if I if I was in in Bournemouth or Paul or on the south coast, I, I would love to ask the people defending defending the statue. Why are you defending the statue of a man who supports Hitler? I think it, whenever you ask those kind of questions to these people, I don't know if you've watched the Sky News clip of basically these, not to generalise, but middle-aged people who are suddenly very angry about this is if you tell them well he did defend Hitler he had quite anti-semitic views the first thing that they say yeah but that's what they say yeah but it's kind of 
we've ingrained into these people that some things can be accepted if there's a greater kind of achievement. Like I, I say greater in a very loose way. Because I think he was like the founder member of the Scouts, right? Yeah. So these people probably have been Scouts, Brownies, Tawny Owl, you know, that kind of stuff. And they have this emotional view of this person. Oh, you know, if it wasn't for him, there'd be no Scouts. Personally, never been a Scout myself. So I don't really see why they're so passionate about it. But it's kind of this, it, it's baffling when they go, yeah, I know that, but it's, it's kind of lazy, I think. And if you go out to any person that's defending these slave trade statues, that's what they always say. Well, yeah, but every every supporter of the statues, every you know, even the government, like the Boris Johnson, we know this. But it's really irritating. Yeah, definitely, absolutely. And what strikes me as well is it's like, yeah, but it wasn't illegal at the time, which blows my mind I mean, completely. Um, and this. An example I saw on social media, it was it was a picture, um, and it basically said the people who were helping Anne Frank were breaking the law. The people who told oh, the Nazis about Anne Frank were keeping to the law. And I think, although that's that's a really really a, kind of atrocious um, example, the point that the point that the image was making was the fact that the law at the time shouldn't now be used as a moral compass so like we can't look mm. back and say well they wasn't breaking the law and then say oh it, it might have been all right then because now society has moved past that and surely we can look at these things and say no that is absolutely atrocious why are we celebrating this person mm. that's what we're talking about oh it was illegal at the time a lot of these atrocities that happened were inverted commas legal like it's just because it's legal doesn't mean it's right or it's even been acquired in that way because we know that Adolf Hitler did pass a lot of laws but in a very very bad way so I hate it when people use the legal argument because you know when you're studying law and when people try and rattle off the legal argument to you you're like well, come on really is that your defense that it was legal at the time we know what how governments can sometimes act they can sometimes be a bit I wouldn't say corrupt but they act way beyond their powers they put in laws they justify whatever they want to do and for example just a very very small tangent for example what's happening in Hungary about um Victor Alban now wants to pass a law that forbids people to change their genders that doesn't tell me that that's right or that's legal that just shows you that a government's way gone way beyond their station, put in quite a wrong law. And then when people say in 20 years, somebody go, yeah, but it was right at the time. It's kind of quite confusing when someone says that. Exactly. And the thing is, if, and again, I'm, I'm, I, I want to be equivocal. We're talking about the here and now. So regardless of what the law was at the time if if people in 2020 we're in the year 2020 and if people still aren't able to use their own moral compass to say that we should not have a statue dedicated to a man heavily involved in the slave trade i really worry about this country i really really do it's just ridiculous it is absolutely it shows that we've failed as a country i think we need to approach how we go about things now 
and change it to combat systemic racism. And I think it's a way that people can kind of stick their fingers in the ear and go, la, 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 it's all fine. Society works perfectly when it clearly doesn't. It really doesn't. Mm -hmm. Another example, campaign um, campaigners also want the statue of imperialist Cecil Rhodes at Oriel College at Oxford University to be taken down, saying that the university has failed to, ad to address institutional racism. And of course, we speak um, we're both second year students at university now at different universities. Um, a lot of universities in this country are, do not do enough to ensure that people from every background have a place at university. Or accommodated. Yeah, the, the, it, universities don't do enough. And I can't imagine, and again, I, I'm self-aware enough to know that I say this as a white man, I will never know how it feels. But I cannot imagine how it would feel to be one of the very few black and minority ethnic students at a, a university like Oxford to have to walk down the street being overlooked by a statue of Cecil Rhodes. It's quite grotesque. It's it? awful. It's really ridiculous. And I don't understand why you wouldn't just pull it down. Mm. And as well, we were talking about BA students, um, that university don't do enough. At our university, we've got this... Um, I wouldn't say policy, but this initiative called De Decolonise the Curriculum. And this is just at Kent. But I remember looking at the report and how damning university education is here. So it was talking about how I think at one, at one page was about seven out of 10 students feel they're marginalised in either seminar groups or in groups in their subject. And it's quite damning across the board. I feel like Universities don't do enough for their students anyway, in my opinion. But to be marginalised and have, like you say, this, this statue of a slave trader being behind you, and it, it just doesn't make sense how, why is it taking until 2020 to even have a discussion? We're not even on the, anywhere near getting actual change yet, which is even more infuriating. But we, we, we're just about having a discussion. That's only because our you know, feet are being held to the fire. Don't you see that how frustrating that is? Like it's taking all of this just for this one little nugget of discussion and maybe a promise of change when it never happens anyway. It's kind of why is it taking a discussion about statues to like to just to go across issues of systemic and institutional racism? We should be having these discussions anyway. We should be looking to change anyway. The issue that we encounter and society encounters is that this is a really uncomfortable topic to talk about and again the, the, one of my favorite podcasts um to listen to it has nothing to do with politics it's about um mls it's called extra time and they had a player on there called cj sapong and a couple of other players who've been talking about this um and the podcast has been really good because of course no football is happening at the minute anyway um, and they've been talking about the protests that have been happening in America with regards to Black Lives Matter. And one of the things that a lot of the people who have been kind of invited onto the podcast as guests keep saying is that you need to have these conversations, not just with your black friends, because your black friends are probably having lots and lots of people ring them and asking them the same questions. You need to have the conversations with your white friends. And that's why um, that's why I felt that it was important that we talked about this as well, because racism, systemic racism, institutional racism isn't just an issue for black people it's an issue for everyone and it's up to everyone to come together 
to work mm. out a solution. And as uncomfortable as talking about racism might make you feel, it's important that we come up with solutions that help everyone. Because I want to live in a society that is fair for everyone. And that's just so obvious. It, it's just the intuitive thing to think. But of course, the problem and the barrier that the protests have now encountered is that it's being conflated with lots of other things. So for instance, people were outraged um, yesterday, which was Thursday at the time of recording, because they thought the in-betweeners had been taken down because it was offensive. And the reason the in-betweeners was taken off of YouTube was because the rights holder had changed. So they had to take it off that channel and they were going to put it on a new channel. It's still available to stream on Fritbox and all four, I think, something like that. So it's just like, once an issue becomes so deeply, um, an expression that James O'Brien uses is the footballification of politics. So basically you've got, you're cheering on your team. And when you get to that position, people very quickly shut their eyes to the discussion and just say, nope, these are our people, we're, we're supporting this argument kind of thing. And that's that's the issue that that is being encountered at the moment because as you said earlier, Black Lives Matter isn't about getting rid of some statues or renaming a hall in Liverpool or changing some street names. It's about changing society. Um, but people then get bogged down and say, oh, well, I'm a bit upset that you've taken Come Fly With Me off of Netflix. I think that's really unfair. And then it becomes an issue about whether Come Fly With Me should be on Netflix or not. That's not the issue. It's about mm. it's about changing so much more than that. Um, and I think that kind of is um, a helpful segue to another thing that we kind of said that we'll talk about at the start of the show. So it would not have escaped your attention that um, Little Britain and Come Fly With Me have been removed from BBC iPlayer, Netflix and Britbox as objections resurfaced to some of the sketch show's characters. So Netflix have pulled the Matt Lucas and David Walliams series on Friday along with their other comedy, Come Fly With Me, the BBC and Britbox took Little Britain off on Monday. Both outlets have said that times have changed since it first aired. I'm sure that most people would know the context as to why this has happened, but for context, both shows include scenes where the comedians portray characters from different, from different ethnic backgrounds. Um, I guess I'd just like to throw this over to you. What do you make of the whole kind of the story with regards to Little Britain, come fly with me. You can see why they've done it. And I could find sympathy why they've done it, because you do look at some of the characters and sketches in Little Britain and you're thinking this is, you know, this is quite distasteful. But one thing that I have with it, it seems quite reactionary. It shouldn't take... For example, Come Fly With Me, I think, is 10 years old. And there's this one sketch um, where the two comedians are portraying these two Japanese girls who are obsessed with Martin Clune. This is in, and if you watch it in its entirety, you'll, be, you'll understand what I'm trying to say. It shouldn't have taken 10 years to recognise how distasteful it is. And I feel like it's done the argument a major disservice by doing this now because it does seem as if, oh, they're coming for every show, they're coming for this, they're coming for that, and it kind of distorts the argument, like we've been saying. So it's a difficult position, I think, for the BBC 
accepted to be in. And the problem with it is that when does it stop? Because, for example, Britbox have this Doctor Who adventure called the Tal- the Telongs of Wen Chiang. Uh, I've watched it. I'm a Doctor Who fan of the 80s. And it portrayed Japanese people and Chinese people in a very racist way. Yet what was done with that show is they put an introduction at the start of it by saying, oh, this does have things from the 80s that's out of time. And it, I'm not saying they could have done that with Little Britain or comply with me, but it's kind of, there are other ways to address how offensive this may be to people. So I think by taking it off the air, it's kind of taken the air out of the argument and it's now got people reacting in all sorts of ways. I, th- I think that's interesting. Um, something that's cropped up for me and something that a lot of people then kind of talk about on social media is the number of um, corporate accounts, businesses, etc., giving these statements. And um, Apple did one, I think, earlier, or one of the people involved in Apple's kind of senior team released a video. It was like four minutes long talking about how Apple were committed to fighting racial injustice etc etc um and then the the response that i saw and it was the only reason i actually saw the tweet in the first place was just a screenshot of apple's executive board um and predictably there are no people of from minority backgrounds on the board or at least in in the thing that i saw um and i think that there are a lot of companies and brands and people who are really desperate to be seen to be doing something and then people then criticize them for not having done something previously and i think an important thing that everyone has to do is that everyone has to make their first steps and again i'm not def- so there, there was an image that i saw as well of um it basically depicted all the top board members from various sporting organizations in the uk so it had like the fa um uk athletics so on and so forth and I think out of about 80 positions, I think six of them were occupied by people from minority ethnic backgrounds, which, of course, is awful and it should be a much higher percentage. Um, and that's where you have to start making process. So someone has to start the ball rolling at some point. And my hope with all of this is that, of course, since the since the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis last month, it's consumed everyone's attentions it's been something that we've talked about in every walk of life for instance i did an interview um for the student newspaper that i had to run in the sports section and the interview that i did we didn't really talk about sport we spoke about the importance of um having safe spaces on campus for people from minority backgrounds and that kind of thing for context the, the football team that we're talking about was a campus football team dedicated to that community if that makes sense and I think it's important that now kind of we take the opportunity as this discussion is so big to then start making the changes. Um, I appreciate I've kind of totally moved away from the Come Fly With Me um, introduction to this segment of the show. Um, what I would say with Come Fly With Me is that, yeah, I'm not offended by the fact it's been taken down at all. It, it's, as you say, looking back at looking back at the TV show, it's very offensive to lots of different people. And even at the time, you are shocked that that made it to air. You're thinking it, it just about nudged over the line to get in the air in 2010. It obviously wouldn't be broadcast today. 
And it's, again, we're talking about this fine line between drawing a caricature of society. Because if you watch Little Britain and look at when it was actually filmed, I think it was 2005, 2005, 2006, 2007. The characters in it kind of represent the United, it's why it's called Little Britain. It's kind of like a subsection of each society. You know, for example, Vicky Pollard, the uneducated, you know, teen pregnant mum off the estate. Uh, Andy Pitkin, uh, disabled, turned out he's not. That's kind of shining light of people, benefit cheats, uh, the transvestites, etc., etc. There becomes a fine line where you draw the, where you shine the light on on these people, but then you mock them and then you kind of deride them. And I know they've apologised ever since, but you're kind of thinking, does it really take all of this to kind of acknowledge that it was offensive to some people? Yeah, it's kind of like an ign- I think it's like an ignorance. And the the issue that and and the reason why, in my opinion, it's correct that things like Come Fly With Me and Little Britain have been taken off of um, Netflix and other services is the fact that the the people who were playing, for example, the people of minority background were Matt Lucas and David Williams. That 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 is the issue. If you have people from that background playing the character in a way that is designed to reflect or show what is wrong with society and the issues that society faces, then that's a totally different thing. But that's obviously not what Come Fly With Me was about. It was about, it was a comedy show. It was, it was a mockumentary. So it, it was designed to make people laugh. And the way that they tried to make people laugh was by saying offensive things. Um, and I think that's the distinction that we need to draw. I think, the thing that people like about comedy and about films and about media is the fact that it reflects real life. And in order for something to reflect real life, it has to take into account the issues in society and it has to talk about those things. It has to address those things because if it doesn't, it's no different to having a statue of a slave trader in the middle of Bristol. It needs to have context and we need to talk about those issues. And I think a reason why society hasn't made the progress that it should have made with regards to equality and just frankly being civil and nice to each other is the fact that we don't talk about these issues because of the so-called British stiff upper upper lip. I think that's an issue. Um, And the comments, so in 2017, Matt Lucas said, if I could go back and do Little Britain again, I wouldn't make those jokes about transvestites and I wouldn't play black characters. Basically, I wouldn't make that show now. It would upset people. We made a more cruel kind of comedy than I would now. Um, David Williams has also said that he would definitely do it differently in today's cultural landscape. And, of course, that's worth acknowledging these things. And the counter-argument to what we've been saying, and again, I'd like to stress this isn't my view, is that people who have been against the taking down of Come Fly With Me or Little Britain is... Well, it was said in 2010, it, it wasn't kind of, it was okay at the time, so why should we be taking it down now? But again, I think that ignores the progress that society has made. And a lot of the time, people will say it because they like the TV show. So, for instance, people who like Little Britain, and I'm, I'm, I'm not talking about everyone, but I'm, the people I've seen on social media have basically been saying, well, I like Little Britain, so does this mean that I'm a massive racist? Um whether it does or not is beside the point, but I think people need to recognise and people need to recognise that we need to make progress. And something, and sorry, this is quite an extended monologue, um, 
but one of the, one of the things that's important to think as well i and i speak as a white person if you're offended by the fact that your favorite tv show has been taken off of netflix because it is offensive can you imagine if the amount of hurt and anguish that people go through on a daily basis because of racism like it's a there's a complete kind of failure to think about the broader picture um and again i think i think that's a probably a harsh message to say, but I think it's true. I think if you're if you're that offended, and again, I don't like to use the word snowflake, it's just a ridiculous term, but if, like, and I'm going to use it ironically, if you're so much of a snowflake that you can't put up with having to buy a copy of Come Fly With Me if you want to watch it, then how on earth would you cope with systemic racism? And I think that's something that people kind of okay. need to open their eyes to. I think it's our failure to empathise. I think where we don't I think what we're doing right now is white privilege. Like we get, we we have the honour to talk about it. We don't have to go out into the outside world and be, you know, look at a policeman and fear for our lives. We don't have to apply for a job knowing that we might be disadvantaged because of the colour of our skin. We can talk about it, but we don't experience it. And it definitely shaped, I think, people's opinions on Come Fly With Me and Little Britain because where we don't experience systemic racism. We can't, you know, we can't see the other side. We can't see why people really, really want it taken down. Because for some people, it's not just an assault on their identity. It's actually an assault on their lives. You know, oh, I'm like this cat. People think I'm like this character. Does that mean that that's what everyone thinks about me? Is that how people who wish to employ me think about me? Is that what's going to be in their minds when they're thinking of hiring me or firing me? So I think this debate kind of, explains what white privilege is in a very nuanced, very uh, subliminal way. Definitely. And a couple of times, and I'll say it again, is the fact that we are speaking from a position of privilege. We don't have to worry about those things simply because of the way that we look and kind of the background that we have. And that is, again, the world shouldn't be that way. And I think that's why it's important that we talk about this, because it's important that everyone is on the same page. And I think that's really, really important. Um, a different topic, if you don't mind, and it's one of the last things I've got on my notes, but I'm sure we'll, we'll probably ramble on a little bit longer anyway. Um, as, as I've mentioned, I, I do like listening to people I disagree with, and I like listening to talk radio. Um, Nigel Farage, back in the news this week, he has been dropped by LBC at the end of his contract. So technically he wasn't sacked but he also didn't reach the end of his contract so basically he was sacked um that came after comments where he called um or compared rather black lives matter protesters to the taliban and also suggested that we should defund the bbc um because the bbc had basically become a propaganda arm of black lives matter essentially um what do you make of the situation regarding Nigel Farage? I think it was the right thing for LBC to do. And I think it kind of represents the final live of this political cat, Nigel Farage, I think, finally being extinguished. We've seen Farage dominate the airwaves for the last, what, 10 years, would you say? And the more extreme, the more offensive he has become, the more distasteful he's become, the audience he has kind of grows, right? And LBC, I think, 
seeing that comment about the Taliban was incredibly distasteful. It was incredibly off the mark. I think that was the, the final straw. Like, Farage is always known for saying the indefensible. I, I'll never forget the breaking point uh, poster in the EU referendum. I'll never forget the uh, debate he had with Nick Clegg where he basically kind of perpetuated this myth about immigrants only coming for, you know, calling the NHS an international health service, etc., etc. I think that only becomes so much where a politician, inverted commas, politician can get away with. And I think it was right for LBC to finally get rid of him. And it, it, this might be the political death of Nigel Farage, which has been long overdue. The thing to remember with Nigel Farage as well, and I, I say this as someone who, as I, as I previously said, I do enjoy or I do... I think it's important that you listen to people you disagree with because only when you listen to people you disagree with can you become more sure of your own kind of ideas. Obviously, there's a there's a line that you draw with that in terms of how far you go with people you disagree with, but that's a different debate. In terms of Nigel Farage, before, and again, Farage throughout his political career has said lots of things that I disagree with and has said lots of things that are very offensive. Um, the Breaking Point poster, for example was really awful it was it was really 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 awful to be to be honest um but of course until recently he's been and again this speaks to kind of the situation that the british is in and kind of the mindset the british electorate is in farage has been a mainstay in british politics for as long as i can remember his, ever since I started following politics, Nigel Farage has always been one of the names and one of the people who is always on the things like um, Question Time. He's always had appearances on the Today programme, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and it's only kind of since the 2019 election where he started doing this really bizarre, Nigel Farage gets in a boat and hunts down people trying to cross the channel. And again, we... He's been doing it during lockdown as well. Again, yeah, yeah. Kind of just underlines the ridiculous. And again, we're kind of we're kind of digressing from the point. But it's like, Nigel Farage has always, of course, been a right wing politician. He's always that, that is what he is. He's anti-establishment. He thinks he's a populist, etc., etc., etc. He's always advocated for anti-immigration policies. Um, with comparing Black Lives Matter to the Taliban, he completely crossed the line, and I hope. I really hope this is the end of Nigel Farage in the political mainstream. I really, really do. And it's not because I disagree with him. It's because in order to have a civil society, people need to play by the same rules. And there should be in any country, certain at a certain point, you've crossed the line, whatever walk of life you're in, whatever kind of job you have, whatever kind of university you attend, there should be a point where you say, no, this is unacceptable. And comparing people who want racial equality to a terror organisation is unacceptable. It's, it really is that simple. And what I hope LBC do, and again, I, I just kind of want to underscore kind of where I'm, I'm coming at with, with this idea, is I don't want LBC to replace him with someone in the centre or someone on the left, I think he should be replaced by someone who is also on the right side of British politics because 
I think it's important that we hear from people with different perspectives. I just don't think we should hear from people who are blatantly racist. Mm. It's kind of a, in a way, a tragic end for Nigel Farage because there's one thing, rightly or wrongly, that we will consider Nigel Farage in the history books, ironically. He will probably go down as one of the most influential politicians of our time. I think the spearhead of the Eurosceptic movement, I think without Farage, you don't, Euroscepticism probably doesn't leave the whiff of the Tory backbenches. It doesn't force a prime minister into a referendum. It doesn't detach us from this massive trading block in December. Yet, for everything that he wanted to be remembered for, ironically, has come crashing down with all of these extreme views, this extreme plies, plays of going on a boat, you know, going down to Dover, you know, in his wellies. It, it kind of, he's distorted probably his own inverted commas legacy. And this final chapter, this final stand with LBC, if this is it, then this will probably what he's remembered for. He's not going to be remembered for the Eurosceptic movement. He's just going to be remembered for being a vehement, quite revolting racist. The, the important thing to remember, though, with, with all the things we've discussed, is that ultimately the moment in history in which we find ourselves in isn't about Nigel Farage's political or broadcasting future. It's not about the fate of Edward Colston's factory, uh, factory statue. It's not about whether or not you can stream Come Fly With Me on Netflix. It's about people's lives and it's about living in a society that treats people how you would like to be treated. And I know that's kind of the most playground thing I think I could possibly say on a politics podcast about Black Lives Matter, but it's true. And it's like, we just need to work out a way in which the people, by hook or by crook, come to realise that the way that our society is set up is entirely rigged. It's entirely rigged towards white people. Systemic racism is a problem in the United States. It's a problem in the UK. And I'll go back to... It's a problem across the world. Yeah, of course. And I'll go back to the interview I was talking about earlier. And one of the things we talked about was kind of the fact that people on this football team that I was talking to had encounters with the police where they clearly kind of, in their view, been racially profiled and spoken to the police simply because of the colour of their skin. And the whole point of this conversation is that we need to... It's important that we talk about it and it's important that we find a way to move forwards. And it's important that at the end of the day, we get rid of the Cecil Rhodes of this world. And it's, it's not a case of erasing history because, say, for example, Oxford University did take the Rhodes statue down. That would be in the news constantly for the best part of a week comfortably if edward colston was dominating the news cycle from saturday until at least wednesday the recessor roads falling would be absolutely massive news around the world and that isn't erasing history that's making new history people aware. well yeah well yeah it's making people aware but it's making new history and people forget that in a hundred years time when when i'm 10 for under um people are going to look you're not optimistic i'm I'm not optimistic that i'm going to make it to 120 (laughs) no um but in all seriousness where in 100 years times that people are going to look back at the 2020s or the 20s as they'll call it 
and they'll be like, okay, um, what on earth happened? What happened? What on earth happened in that year? Why did this happen? Why did the people? Why were there people in in on the south coast defending the statue of a man who supported the Nazis? Um, and I think people forget that these moments that you see on social media now will be in the textbooks a hundred years from now, and it's important not to get away from the fact that in renaming a street that was previously named after a slave trader, just something else, anything else. It doesn't matter what the street's called. It could be the most generic name in the world. You could call it Street Lane. I don't really care. But in in changing those things, you make history in itself and you make you make the right steps forward. Hmm. And as well, you're kind of resetting morality in, in, in the right way. Because Boris, like, we go back to the start of the podcast when you... Uh, spoke about Boris Johnson's tweets about oh uh, it was right at the time I think what we're doing at the moment history will probably vindicate us you know for saying this is the right thing and people hopefully this kind of thing permeates into the next century and centuries after people look back and go that was the right thing to do and it's about values I think we're resetting the values in a right way and we're kind of making sure morality kind of stays on this very straight path for sure and returning i think this is probably a good way to end the show because we're now coming up towards just over an hour um, an hour and 10 minutes at the minute so thank you if you have kind of stuck with us persisted with the podcast so far we will we will return <laughs> to um boris johnson who is supporting a lovely kind of hashtag stay alert in his twitter profile at the moment and I'll go back to Boris Johnson's seventh tweet where he said, but it's clear that the protests have been sadly hijacked by extremists intent on violence. The attacks on the police and indiscriminate acts of violence, which we have witnessed over the last week, are intolerable and they are abhorrent. What I read from the prime minister's statement is that he's not addressing the root issues. And it took, it took Boris Johnson so long to speak out about the killing of George Floyd that I just can't take him seriously. I've really struggled to take Boris Johnson seriously on this issue because A, it took him so long to say anything at all, which is just quite frankly disgraceful if you're the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. And B, the comment that he made when he talks about the protests, he's talking about Black Lives Matter. He's not talking about the counter-protests who want to protect Winston Churchill's statue. Mm. And I think it's quite concerning that Boris Johnson and the government in general haven't been particularly quick or willing to reach out with an olive branch and say, we can talk about this. They've not been supportive. They've been quite mm. kind of standoffish about the whole thing. And, and introverted as well. They've showed quite, quite a frightening lack of leadership considering this. And again, what I was talking about with the history books is that people look back at this year as one of the most significant in British history and, of course, history around the world. And I'm not really sure what, what the Prime Minister has tried to achieve with his statement, because I think it's just going to anger more people than, than were angry in the first place. What what do you make of that? Com completely agree. And I think as well, it's a frightening lack of self-awareness from Boris Johnson. We saw this in the election campaign about his comments on the record in print uh, towards ethnic minorities. There's no self-awareness there. There's continues to be no self-awareness in either sympathy or empathy or even 
any sort of move to to quell that what could be seen in a couple of weeks time as social and civil unrest and like you say a, a complete lack of leadership this is also a lack of i'd say lack of humanity because i think anything anything can be done to show solidarity but what boris johnson decided to do is kind of come across as a leader but with no authority he has no moral authority on the black Lives matter movement and he's now showing he doesn't really want to show any authority or the wrong authority on the protest movement in itself and i think it's just as the weeks go on as the virus begins to decline as the shops begin to open on june the 15th the new chapter of this movement is about to be written and i think boris johnson has made a what might be to borrow a better phrase he might be on the wrong side of history it's important to remember as well this is going to kind of be my last comment of the show it's important to rem- remember with the prime minister that this is someone who was previously a journalist, previously, obviously, mayor of London, who has said some things. And we all know the quotes about watermelon smiles and about letterboxes and about tank tops. You, 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 you get my drift, I'm sure. It's like this is this is a prime minister who hasn't really been willing to show that he has learned. And we, we look at his thread. And again, so he says, we cannot now try to edit or censor our past. We cannot pretend to have a different history. The statues in our cities and towns were put up by previous generations. And I think the important thing for everyone in this world, it's not just about Black Lives Matter, it's about kind of anything. You need to be able to admit when you're wrong. And I don't think Boris Johnson has ever really given a true kind of honest apology for some of the things that he's said that are are wrong and he shouldn't have said them and I think it's important that if we are going to achieve any semblance of racial equality in this country we need to make sure that people are willing to learn and I think that's kind of why at the, at the top of the show we both said like we, we will always try our best to be the best kind of allies to Black Lives Matter that we can be and it's part of that is accepting that sometimes you need to hold your hands up and say okay we need to look at this differently i got it wrong and from the government i've not seen i'm being kind actually i've not seen <laughs> i was going to say i've not seen much i've not seen any leadership in terms of in terms of saying kind of morally okay yeah we can make progress on things we can change things and i think that's kind of that's where i'd like to leave it from me personally i just want to say that if you if if you are listening to the podcast your plans for this weekend read as follows. Get on the train to London, protect the Winston Churchill statue. Um, you really, you really, really need to reassess your priorities and maybe kind of watch some documentaries um, because I don't understand you whatsoever. And I think it's important that we, we come together at this time and recognise that Black Lives Matter and that as a society, we need to change and we need to make strides forward. Absolutely, here, here. We are a broken country. I think we've been broken for a few decades. I don't think this has just magically happened from the referendum. I don't think this has magically happened in the aftermath of George Floyd. I think our institutions have crumbled. Our uh, people of authority have always been left lacking or even absent. I think the only way to be a solid and 
strong and stable society is that we start from scratch we start from acknowledging our you know our wrong comments our wrong actions and when we do that we can start this path to solidarity to equality to it's really a sense of social cohesion but i think the path is long i don't think we've even started yet i think hopefully over the next few weeks this movement doesn't go away i don't think it, it will i think it should be keep going i'm always a fan of this movement i think there's a lot of work to do but i think the work can begin definitely this has been episode two of the midfield politics podcast thank you so much for joining us and until next time stay safe and have a good week